0: 2nd Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 His divine power has granted to us
1: all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Pray with me. Great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, please unite Your people around Your Word as we feast on the riches of this passage. Please humble us. Show us how proud we really are. Demolish our pride. And raise us up out of the muck and mire of our pride to new heights of love and bring us to depths of peace. May it happen today as we see the grandeur and glory of our Lord in these verses. Please help us reconcile our relationships with each other. May we see the glory and beauty of Your united people in these verses. By so doing, may
0: we set aside all our petty fighting, grumblings, and gossips. May those
1: who may be in this room care more about their reputation and what they want, even at others' expense, be brought very low this morning so that You may heal us and save us. And where You are right now in Your heart and mind, please pray against distractions if You would. We would consecrate these moments together as an offering of worship to the Lord
0: as we gaze upon His beauty in His Word. If you would also pray for me, that my words would help us and that we would all see the Lord Jesus clothed in His Gospel today. Please, Father, do these things for Your glory
1: and the glory of Your Son Jesus. It is in and for His namesake that we pray. Amen. I want to give you eight reasons to rejoice from these two verses that we've just read as we see how it is that the grace and peace of Jesus, the grace and peace of God, come to be ours in Christ. And why it is that He gives us these things. After we see these eight reasons to rejoice from these verses, I'll give us five applications. So, our God desires that we His people rejoice before Him, that we celebrate Him in the fullness of joy. And here are just some of the reasons why we should do that that can be seen in these two verses we're considering today. So, eight reasons to rejoice, and five applications. Number one, rejoice. The gifts of grace and peace are not ethereal. It may not be a word that you're used to hearing or using, but it simply means that they're not just up there in heaven, far away and and unattainable. Last week we took the whole message to look closely at verse 2, seeing some of the depths and just a few of the many treasures that are there for us. We saw that verse 2 could be seen as the thesis or the theme of the whole letter, and that is that Grace and peace can be multiplied to us in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus. That sounds wonderful on paper. But how does that work in real life? There are many religions and many sects of Christianity where the divine things, the real things that your soul needs, are way up in heaven, far away. And maybe only the enlightened few can gain them through maybe prayer, fasting, study, years and years. And then finally you arrive at grace and peace. But that is not the picture of this passage. The picture of this passage gives a different picture because He, if you look closely at verse 3, His divine power, that His or the He in this verse is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is granting His people all that they need for life and godliness. The grace and peace that you need. The stuff. The resources. The support. The truth. The spiritual and emotional support. The fortitude. It is all given and granted to you. Now, it is yours. So question, how does the Lord Jesus give grace and peace to His people? Answer, by granting them all things that pertain to life and godliness. It might be fair for you or any one of us to ask, well, if that's true, that He grants to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, why do I feel such a lack of grace and peace in my heart right now? Well, as we saw last week, there is a big difference between being given gifts and actually availing yourself of those gifts. There's a big difference between being saved and living out your salvation. There's a big difference between believing that God is trustworthy and actually trusting in His promises and His ability to keep them. For now, though, the point is
0: he has given you everything you need
1: for life and godliness. If you are in Christ, then it is all yours. You don't need to go somewhere else to find it. You don't need a guru or the next special study or the next spiritual fad. It is all yours now in Christ. So That's one. Number two, rejoice. The Lord Jesus is powerful. In these verses, it's essential to note that divine power is being ascribed to Jesus. The He or His refers to Christ. And so Peter is ascribing something that would only
0: be reserved by a good faithful Jew to the I Am. And it
1: is in this divine power that Jesus gives these things. So, a question by what means does Jesus grant all these things to us? Answer is divine power. What Jesus did was not simply difficult, it was not something that merely required a perfect life or a divine nature. Rather, it required divine power. Salvation would never work and nothing that Christ did would even matter or even happen had He not been
0: God Himself with divine power at His disposal. Here is how verse 3
1: flows from the previous verse. If you're looking at the ESV like I am, there's actually a paragraph heading that's just inserted there in between verses 2 and 3. That really shouldn't be here because here's how the grammar merits being read. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord as or since His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and
0: godliness. It flows immediately straight through. Thus, His divine power is almost personified as the thing that is doing
1: the granting to us. How does that work? Interestingly, I think this is a not-so-subtle allusion to His resurrection. Power, when used in connection with Jesus in the New Testament, often, or at least in every place I could find, is an allusion or a direct reference to His resurrection from the dead. So, if that is what's being referred to, then the meaning would sound something like this In the mighty act of his divine victory over the grave, this same powerful act has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I think that's right. I think that's the sense that we should take power in. It's not just raw divine power that he has by right of his divinity. It is the divine power at work in Him to function as Savior and Redeemer of the universe. The power that is at work in Him to make Him the Messiah who rises from death. That's the second reason to rejoice. Jesus Himself has this power. And it is this power that grants us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Number three, rejoice. The Lord Jesus is not exacting Again, another word you may not use frequently. Exacting. That means that that trying to extract something out of someone, trying to get something from someone that they don't have the ability to give. It can feel overwhelming when a person considers
0: the basics of Christian obedience. Or is that just me? I mean, for goodness
1: sakes, brothers and sisters, we're commanded to make the best use of the time for the days are evil. Not a better use of the time. Not a respectable use of the time. Make the best use of the time, for the days are evil. And that's just one example. We're stuck in a cul-de-sac of mediocrity excusing our not making the best use of the time, calling it all holy because
0: we're just enjoying God's good gifts.
1: That's another sermon.
0: It can feel overwhelming when you think about the moral demands of Christ. even in the New Covenant of Grace. Right? It's not just the Old Testament. Right?
1: You hear this all the time. Christians reading through a, a, a Bible reading plan and they're going through the Old Testament like, well, oh, I'm thankful I'm not under those commands. That would be difficult. And it would be. But then you realize there are more imperatives in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, than there are in the Old Covenant. And they're more aimed at the heart. And so in some sense, in a very real sense, it's, it's more difficult. It's overwhelming. we don't need new laws and rules i i feel like there's a lot of teachers and preachers out there many maybe in our same camp many close to us who are just interested in extrapolation and and uh, illusion and and building all these more rules rules and regulations for us to follow and i'm like we're having a hard time with just basic Christian faithfulness. We might even say that the very first thing, the very first thing that you ought to do as a Christian in your following of Jesus is a daily wholesale denial of self. Any
0: takers? We, we batten a thousand on that and we can move on to, to some new stuff. You don't
1: need more rules. The point is, though, that given all of this, given all of this, it can feel like God is just up there in heaven with His heavenly clipboard checking off boxes or giving us grades on all of these demands that He's given to us. Waiting to judge us on the last day when we get there. The two popular ways out of this conundrum Or number one, blatant pride in glossing over your disobedience while making the evil of the world, those people out there, a really big deal. Or two, glossing over our disobedience or idolatry by some vague sense of grace. Those are the two ways out of that conundrum. But the biblical solution is to know and to believe that Jesus is not like Pharaoh you remember the story when Pharaoh was angry at Moses and the Israelites? He said, you've got to keep making the bricks, but I'm not going to give you straw anymore. Straw was an essential ingredient, and they, they had to produce it. They had to produce the bricks, or else they would suffer greatly. And you've got to keep doing it and keep executing on it, but I'm not going to give you what you need for it. And some of us, I think, feel that God is the same way. Demanding obedience and not giving us what we need. He's not exacting. He's not like Pharaoh. He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, brothers and sisters. Some of you may be blaming Him for your lack of progress in sanctification. Thinking that He has yet to grant you what you need in order to be really done with sin, or to overcome that inclination to the flesh. But no, in Christ Himself, we have all we need. Christ Himself is our sanctification. Christian maturity is figuring out what that means. In seeking Him as Him, not just obedience or holiness as sterile objectives, but seeking Christ Himself and seeking to imitate Him, we will then find that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. That's the third reason to rejoice. Jesus isn't exacting. He's not like Pharaoh. He gives us all we need. Number four, rejoice. Knowledge of the Lord is granted. You see this in verse 3 where it goes, Through the knowledge of Him who called us, the knowledge of Him who called us to, or you could even translate that by His own glory and excellence. How do we get all things that pertain to life and godliness? By knowledge of Jesus. Personal, intimate knowledge of the One who has called us. Here's one commentator talking about this dynamic. This knowledge of Jesus did not come through their own personal investigation, but because of Jesus Himself who called us. He took the initiative. And this call came by His own glory and goodness, or glory and excellence. So question, how does His divine power become effective in our lives? Answer, Through true knowledge of Him. Follow-up question. Upon whom are these blessings bestowed? Those whom He has truly called. This is so encouraging. I know that some, many, may not be inclined to be excited about the idea of all the initiative being on the Lord's side of things. But there is real encouragement brothers and sisters, real soul-stabilizing encouragement in knowing that Jesus doesn't wait around for us to want a relationship with Him. He doesn't wait around for us to love Him. He calls us. If He waited around for us to build up the initiative to approach Him and create a relationship with Him, no one would have such a relationship. No, He bestows this intimate knowledge of Him upon those whom He has called. Otherwise, you could truly and justly look down on those who do not have a relationship with Christ. What's wrong with you? I got it together. I I have a relationship with Jesus. But no, it is Christ Himself who calls and blesses us with this intimate knowledge of Him. Can you really take credit? We're building an intimate, personal relationship with the divine God-Man, the life-giving Spirit who dwells at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you in the Holy of Holies in heaven, we struggle enough with relationships with people that we can see and speak to with audible words and embrace. Like relationships are a struggle, right? And and we think that we are able to approach Him on our own and and fashion together a real relationship? No, He blesses us. The knowledge of Him is granted. It doesn't depend on you as much as you think. He is holding that relationship together. He grants us access to Him by giving us true personal knowledge of Him. It is gifted and granted to you, and you can't earn it or deserve it. Trust in Him. And that knowledge of Him is yours forever. Number five, rejoice. The glory and excellence of the Lord is for our good. The glory and excellence of the Lord is for our good. It is striking that Jesus' glory and His excellence are put forward here not as the goal, but as the cause of Him granting us this intimate knowledge of Him. Look at it. Called us to, if you're looking at the ESV, there's a footnote that says by. There's actually no preposition there, so grammatically it can go either way. Called us to his own glory and excellence, or by his own glory and excellence. We know intuitively, hopefully you do, that salvation is for God's glory. That is not ultimately about a rescue plan because we bungled things up. It's that God desired to exalt Jesus as preeminent in all things, Colossians 1, and that His glory, His fame, His praise, the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, is going to echo into eternity in an ongoing way. And we, His people, will be there glad, rejoicing before Him. That's the goal. But His glory is not mentioned here as the goal. It's mentioned as the cause. His excellence is the cause of our salvation. Many people think of salvation as a condescension only. Or, or a, an idea where Christ has to come low and be less. And yes, He had to lose or set aside privileges, rights and glory to become human and save us. But make no mistake, though there was loss for Him, and it was a coming down to the depths where we are and where we were to save us. It is not just pity and condescension and bending low in humility to save us. Like how some of you fathers might feel when the diaper duty falls to you one too many times during the day. Condescension. Oh, I'll serve and I'll do this hard thing. that's the right thing to do. No, understand this. No, no, I might be risking a few things in saying it this way. The most glorious and excellent thing Jesus has ever done
0: or could ever do was and is to call and save us. Why?
1: Because calling and saving us is most pleasing to the Father. It was in His glory and His excellence that He calls us. It was because it was fitting that Christ would be the one to bring many sons to glory. Jesus calling and saving a people for God is not merely the solution to the problem after we bungled it up. It is the reason there is a universe in the first place. Jesus' glory and excellence is the reason that there is such a thing as human beings at all. And it is the reason why we were allowed to bungle it up. Christ's glory and excellence must be seen and known. That is a brute reality from before all time. Christ's glory and excellence must be seen and known. And so, here comes the universe to play it out. And here comes you and me. Are we falling in line with this purpose, this majesty, this glory? He calls us to Him so that we might in a sense fulfill or bring to the full measure the showing forth of His glory. That's the fifth reason. His glory and excellence are for our good. They're squarely aimed at our good and our salvation. Number six, the Lord Jesus makes promises. Look at it again. By which He has granted to us His precious And very great promises. We sang multiple songs this morning reflecting on the promises of God. Jesus does not merely call us to Himself and grant us intellectual or personal knowledge of Him. The way that He makes Himself known to us is more than just some inner sense of His person or raw theological truths. He's done all of that to be sure. But the main way that we know Him is in His dual action of speaking and keeping promises. That is how we are able to know God. God is a covenant-making God. And we relate to Him not just on raw truths or facts or experiences or being moved. We see and understand His promises and believe that He is able to keep them. Jesus makes promises. So question, what is the Lord Jesus also granted to us by His glory and excellence? Answer, His precious and very great promises.
0: Are you acquainted with the promises of the Lord Jesus?
1: Christianity is so much more than merely believing that Jesus existed. That's what so many people can mean when they talk about believing in Jesus. Oh yeah, I believe He was a real guy. So what? He didn't just exist. He lived and spoke and made promises. That He would do certain things. Trusting in Him, being a Christian, believing in Jesus, means that you see His promises, believe them, trust that He will do them. That He will make good on them. That they will most certainly come to pass. This is how you can grow strong in your faith. right? Believing that Jesus existed or that He was the Son of God is very much a binary thing. You can't like squeeze harder in your brain and believe that more. But you can grow in the surety of your grasp of his promises. That he will make good on them. That he will bring it to pass. And there is no question or doubt in my heart or mind.
0: That's what it means to grow in our faith. Do you know them? Do you know His promises?
1: you trust that He will do them? Do you see and share Peter's assessment of his promises, that they are precious and very great? Here's what I'm trying to get at in this reflection. Do the promises of Jesus Christ loom large in your life? Do they loom larger than your favorite sport? Your favorite game? Or your Minecraft server? Do the promises of Jesus, are they a bigger deal in your heart and mind than your financial concerns? Do they loom larger in your heart than your desired career
0: path or your romantic entanglements or your relationships? Do the promises
1: of Jesus loom larger in your heart than your sufferings and your trials? That's a tough one. as we are overcome so often and, and flee back to Egypt in our anxiety and our frustrations when trials come. Do the promises of Jesus loom larger than your grudges? or your bitterness against your brothers and sisters? Do they loom larger than the sin that other people have committed against you? Do they loom larger than your desire to be liked and respected? We could go on and on and on. But here's a way to answer all these questions. How does your prayer life and the way you spend time when we're here together answer that question? What does it say about how big the
0: promises of Jesus Christ are to you? His promises are precious and very great. But Peter actually is not interested in characterizing any of
1: them in particular. He's merely concerned about generalizing and characterizing the direction that these promises are pointed. The promises are not an end in themselves. The passage itself gives us the trajectory, the target of where these promises are headed. Look at it again, verse 4. But by which, meaning His glory and excellence, He has granted to us His precious, and very great promises, that through them, they're not an end in themselves, they're a means to an end, that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature.
0: Number seven, rejoice in Christ we partake of the divine
1: nature. So, question To what end has he done all of this? To what end has he made all these promises? Answer To make us partakers in the divine nature. This statement is why I titled the message this way The True Weight of Glory. Those of you who are familiar with the writings of C.S. Lewis know that I'm riffing on a book title of his. He has a book titled The Weight of Glory. Here's what Lewis says about the weight of glory. To please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God. Not merely pitied, but delighted in. As an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but
0: so it is. To that I say a hearty yes and amen. However,
1: this is not the main or primary or superstructure of the weight of glory. To be sure, it is a component of it. But there is something even behind that glorious truth Something behind the truth that God does indeed delight in us. Something even grander than the fact that we are, in fact, even now as His sons and daughters, an ingredient into the divine joy, the divine happiness. And that is this. We will be, and even now, are partakers of His divine nature. The death of God's Son is too high a price to pay to merely cause us to be objects of His delight sitting on His proverbial shelf in heaven to be glory creators for Him where He looks at us and says, isn't it great that Jesus did all that and created these trophies of grace? As glorious as that would be, as glorious as it would be just to be delighted in as His children for all ages, The life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God
0: accomplished so much more. He brings us in. He brings us in. Not merely to be His finished projects, but to be partakers of the divine
1: nature itself with Him. That word with I think is the explanation of what this means here. This is the great promise of the Old Testament that one day God would eliminate the problem of sin and He would come and live with His people. I will be their God. They will be My people. And it's reflected in the promises of Jesus.
0: I will be with you. where we are going, our highest destiny
1: is to be with God in the highest and most meaningful sense
0: possible. This is the true weight of glory. How can we fathom what
1: awaits us if even the Holy Spirit Himself dwelling within us is called but a down payment, a guarantee, of what is to come. This is why John in his letter steps back and says, and what we will be has not yet been revealed.
0: He's not talking about how beautiful the city will be. Some have observed that if Second Peter were written today and we came across this phrase
1: that we would become partakers of the divine nature, that we would quickly jump to call it New Age or heretical or something like that. But listen to the words of Jesus in John's Gospel using different terminology but pointing at the same reality. From John 17, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in Me through their words, so that you and Me. This isn't some special blessing for the apostles or just the martyrs. That they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they may also be in Us so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. The glory that You have given Me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as We are one. I in them and You in Me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that You sent Me and loved them even as You loved Me. We do not become God somehow or in any sense an extension of His being or essence. However, His goal is to bring you in. And for the union between our God and us to be closer than your union with any other person or idea or thing. Even beginning now in this life. How can this be, Well. The table set before us, even now, right in front of me, is a commemoration of this very thing. We depend on the body of Jesus and His blood most fundamentally. He is, in truth, the food that our souls need. Before sin and death entered the
0: equation, Adam and Eve needed to eat from The tree of life. Sin did not
1: bring death like a green gas or force like we see in the Disney films, right? That kind of permeated across the floor of the garden to come to them after they ate of the tree. No, they were banished. They were no longer allowed access to the tree of life. And so they lost it and they began to die in those moments. But there, here, is the tree of life for your souls, offering all of His good fruits to you. And by partaking of all that He is and all that He offers you, even His very life and His body and blood, we become partakers, participants in some sense of the divine nature. How do we do that? what does it look like it starts here look at the end of verse 4 having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire number 8 rejoice we are liberated from the corruption of the world it should be noted you should know this that in the original the world sinful the word sinful or or uh, your translation might say evil isn't there. It's just the word desires. The phrase sinful desire in the ESV is an interpretive decision, and and I think a good one, but the idea Peter is dealing with is not just those obvious sins, those obvious evil desires out there in the world. It's desire or craving or that sense of hustle that causes us to reach out and grasp for things that are not the Lord or that cause our hearts to stray from Him. It is desire itself. You might
0: say greed or lust. anything that you grasp for more than for God Himself
1: The Bible calls it greed, lust, pride of life, pride in possessions, or that want for more, the desire for other things that Jesus speaks about in the parable of the seed and the sower. That's the problem. Not just those obviously wicked desires out there in the world that you would never go down. Notice also the relationship between the corruption that is in the world and us and this desire. It is easy to point your fingers at the world and those people and those who sin in a particular way that you find reprehensible. Who are your tax collectors and sinners today? Who is your sinner class? But understand, this one little statement tells us more about where it all comes from. And that same cause is at work in us. It's desire. It's that grasping for any other thing that is not the Lord. That's where all of it comes from. That The corruption that is in the world is due to that desire. A craving, a desire for anything that makes us value God less or come to Him less. This humbles us, I think, because it's in us as well. The same thing that leads all those people out there in the world down 10,000 paths towards all kinds of sins is in you. But the main point of this statement is this, signaled by His use of the participle, having. He shows how all these blessings can be seen and known. So question, how can we know if these blessings are at work in us? How can we know if these promises are are ours. How can we know if we have begun to partake of the divine nature? How can we know if He has begun to stitch us together with Himself that we would know Him in this intimate way that He's promised?
0: If you're escaping the corruption that is in the world. If you're liberated from it. The world is subject to decay and death
1: not because of some random law of entropy. Rather, even our souls, that immaterial part of us, is doomed and destined for decay and death and destruction. But Christ has defeated all of these enemies and death and the One who had the power of death Himself and offers us escape from the corruption
0: of the world. Will you follow Him out of this corrupt world? Many of us may want participation with
1: the divine nature and all the promises of Jesus, but we don't want to be done with desire and the corruption of this world. But the way that you can grow in your assurance, the way that you can be sure that these promises are yours, is to escape. Flee the corruption that is in the world. So those are eight reasons to rejoice. And it would not be a biblical or Christian sermon without exhortation, even reproof. So here are five applications
0: for us today. Even on a celebration Sunday. Number one, humble yourself.
1: That could be line item number one as application following any sermon on any text, humble yourself. Because these things are so, because this glory is the case, because they are true, we must, we simply must humble ourselves. Pride is an affliction we all suffer from. And The more you think you don't is more of an indication that it is a bigger problem for you. the sheer glory and size of the Gospel, and the stunning beauty of Christ and His power, the One who is doing this and causing us to partake in the divine nature, where He's leading us, all these things are beyond imagination, beyond the strength of our brains to comprehend, and yet they are so. And if it is so, that we are only now beginning to scratch the surface the basics of the glorious Gospel and the Lord's plan for all ages to show us more and more of this than how humble ought you to be today. If you don't know that the number of very important things that you don't know is a very, very large number, then no price is too high to pay for you to come to that realization and humble yourself. Virtually all the blessings of God are on the far side of humility, including assurance that these things are so. Drawing strength from them. Secondly, flee the corruption that is in the world. We have two options, essentially, that this passage puts before us. Participation in the divine nature. Or sticking around, holding on to, being a part of the corruption that is in the world due to desire. Read, lust, sinful desire. Which of these two realities defines your daily life more? More. Hang out with cliques and people we like and avoid significantly older and younger Christians like the plague? Or build friendships with people that are new and treat other and older and younger Christians like family? Which do you think that is? Those are participation of the divine nature or sinful desire? Complain, find fault, protest, grumble, gossip, think almost everything anyone else suggests is dumb and that you know better, or try to encourage, find ways to show up and humbly help. Then, under preaching like this for years and still not building meaningful relationships, vulnerable, exhortation-driven relationships with people in this room, or seeking out accountability... Showing Gospel-driven hospitality. Which category do you think those fall into? Hobbies, work, fun, and your favorite show. Always finding a place on your schedule. Even if you put them on there or not. But struggling to find time to pray, read the Word, be there for your discipleship group or growth group or prayer meeting. being harsh or impatient or unhelpful with your wife and children and blaming your environment and your own selfishness and laziness on your environment or investing the time to learn and take initiative and providing for your wife and children, giving them the leadership and discipleship they need. waiting until your brothers or sister, brother or sister's life, spiritually or literally, blows up, to lift a finger to help them, or investing the time to learn and listen and not making everything about you.
0: Which, do you think, which category do you think those fall into? Crafting sentences
1: and jokes to be sarcastic and put other people down, even when you're here in this building. Or take the time to consider others, how to stir them up to love and good works. Refusing to humble yourself and learn and cleanse yourself to become more useful to the master of the house. Or taking a posture of a true student before God's Word and seeing yourself as the least of all and a slave of all. Two options. Corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire or participation in the divine nature. These things fall in one or the other category, which characterizes our lives on a daily basis more often. Holding your brothers and sisters in Christ to a higher standard than you hold yourself, patting yourself on the back for your achievements, experience, and accomplishments, looking down on others who haven't done as much as you with their lives that you think they should have, or seeing yourself as the least of all the saints, and not even worthy to be called a Christian, and giving all the credit for anything good about you to the Lord. We can spend most of our lives, even as Christians, seeking the very same things that the Gentiles seek, and we gloss over it as not being a problem because we're just enjoying His good gifts. And we can go on and on and on, brothers and sisters, but this idea of liberation being freed, released, escaping the corruption that is in the world, this is a the mega-theme of the Gospel on repeat, even going back all the way to the Exodus. And just like the children of Israel, after they were freed from the house of slavery, wanted to go back because they missed their melons and their cucumbers and the fish from the Nile. We, who have been liberated from the corruption that is in the world, can just want to go right back and participate in those very same mindsets, those very same attitudes, those very same
0: words and deeds.
1: It's easy to pat ourselves on the back and point our finger at the world, at that one sin in particular, that one major corruption that we see, and say, See, I've escaped the corruption in the world because I'm not like that. But on the other hand, calling attention to this kind of corruption that's still within us because of desire is why preaching is a perilous job. Number three. Do all you can to reconcile fully with your brothers and sisters. Very quickly here, this is somewhat of an aside. It is in the text. It's not the main point, but it is important nonetheless because individualistic Christianity or Christianity that is okay without fully reconciled relationships is a massive problem in the church. These truths, however, of participation in the divine nature and all these Precious and very great promises are not just for you by yourself. All the grammar of this text is in the plural. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through His glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you, plural, may become partakers of the divine nature. It's all us together. We should reconcile, as much as it depends on us, with our brothers and sisters to pursue healthy, safe, peace-filled relationships with each other, especially in this room, because every believer is a joint partaker with you in the divine nature. I grew up raising goats. It wasn't my fault. It was my parents'. And you would often put the feed down in the trough, and the stronger and more powerful the goat was, the, the the less they wanted other goats to be around them while they ate. And that same attitude I think can reside in us. We want to partake of the divine nature, we want to receive all the benefits, but
0: keep the other Christians away from me. It's gonna be a city. It is the city of Zion. There's
1: a popular song titled, We Will Feast in the House of Zion by Sandra McCracken. And what a beautiful idea. What a glorious hope. But the way we live our Christian lives sometimes is more like, I would happy to be feast, to feast by myself in the house of Zion. Too bad these other Christians will be there with me too. Or... We will each individually feast in the house of Zion. Or the most prideful of all. It's a good thing God is going to fix all you guys so that we can feast together in the house of Zion and you won't bother me anymore.
0: We go there as a family or we don't go at all. The whole
1: point could be summarized by saying this. If you don't embrace the life lived as
0: us, then most, if not all, of the New Covenant is not for you. Number four,
1: fourth exhortation. Get a bigger Gospel. Get a bigger Gospel. The Gospel is not merely that Jesus died for your sins. Now we're not headed to hell. Hooray! Now go and live your lives however we want as long as we don't go liberal or woke or trans. And make sure we show up on church a good number of times. Read the Bible and pray occasionally, but especially when things go really bad. Good thing God is a friend in time of need. No, that is a paltry excuse for the gospel. A paltry excuse for gospel living and what Jesus is doing in saving us. Jesus does all He does to bring us in, to take us somewhere. The Gospel is meant to bring us to Him and cause us to partake in the divine nature and to share His holiness. This is a much more glorious Gospel. A much more glorious destiny than just escaping hell. You could ask yourself questions like this to get at the heart of this application to get a bigger Gospel. Why do you want Jesus to forgive your sins? Why do you want Jesus to forgive your sins? Do all of your reasons center around yourself and your not wanting to go to hell? Do any of your answers sound like this? That I might know God and be with Him and to know Him and His Son Jesus and to be a partaker in the divine nature forever with my brothers and sisters. That's why you should want Jesus to forgive your sins because that destiny is on the far side of forgiveness. Number five, lastly, the last exhortation here. Come to Christ as the food that your soul needs. In the Revelation to John, the Apostle tells us this in chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, With its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Spurgeon, reflecting on this passage in his sermon, Christ the Tree of Life, said this A perfect and complete assortment of all supplies for human necessities are found in Christ. All sorts of mercies for all sorts of sinners. All kinds of blessings for all kinds of necessities. We read of the palm tree that every bit of it is useful from the root to the fruit. And so it is with Christ. There is nothing in Him that we could afford to do without. There is nothing about Jesus that is extraneous or superfluous. See, I don't use big words in my sermon. You can put Him to use in every part, in every job, in every relationship. A tree of life is for food. Some trees yield rich fruit. Adam in the garden lived only on the fruit of the garden. Jesus Christ is the food for His people. And what a feast they have! What satisfying food! What plenteous food! What sweet food! What Food precisely suitable to all the wants of their souls, Jesus is. As for manna, it was angels' food, but what shall I say of Christ? He was more than that, for never did angels taste above redeeming grace and dying love. Oh, how richly you are fed The flesh of God's own Son is the spiritual meat of every air of heaven. Hungry soul, come to Jesus if you would be fed.
0: Don't you see? We partake of the divine nature as we come to
1: Him for all we need. And our souls feast upon Him. That's the Bible's image. We don't even have time yet to go to John chapter 6 and see Jesus speaking of this in this very same way. Regarding physical food, it is obviously the case that you are what you eat. And it is no less true with spiritual food. You are what you eat. Or more precisely, what your soul feeds upon determines what you will be. Are you feeding upon Christ? I fear... We are spiritually famished and malnourished souls because we are not feeding our souls with Christ Jesus Himself. But the invitation is to you, to all of us, begin today to trust in His promises. This is how you guide your soul to feast upon Him, to trust that He will do it. This is how we become partakers in the divine nature by trusting Him and coming to Him for all that we need. In Him, you will find no lack or shortage of supply. This is the true weight of glory. Let's pray. Father, what a table You have prepared for us. Even in the presence of our enemies, And we pray that we would behold the body and blood of Jesus in these elements that we're about to take. Please grant us spiritual sight that we would in truth feast upon Him. That it wouldn't be about the piece of bread or the little bit of juice, that it would be our hearts grasping hold of Him and finding in Him our all in all.